Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Bob McDonald. Welcome to Quirks and Quarks. On this week's show, edible oil. A scientist argues that to protect the environment, we should skip agriculture and synthesize our food instead of growing it. You can take the carbon from coal or natural gas and use it as a feedstock to create these edible molecules. Really, any CO2 or methane gas is the starting point. And you have to be cruel to be kind. Scientists experiment to understand how music can work to reduce pain. We uh, tortured them a little bit. So it compares pretty well to a particularly hot cup of coffee held against the skin. Plus, how to get ahead if you're a sea star. Whale skin tells a climate change story. And investigating if humans have free will. You have no choice but to listen. All this today on Quirks and Quarks. You know how we produce food. Plants and animals are grown on vast tracts of land in an energy-intensive process that uses huge amounts of resources. Water, fertilizer, fossil fuels, and back-breaking dawn-to-dusk labor. Well, that's the old way of producing food. The new way could be in a facility more like a chemical plant or an oil refinery, using resources that never saw a farm. It's food without farming. And it's the focus of a new study by a team including Dr. Stephen Davis, a professor of Earth System Science at the University of California, Irvine. Dr. Davis, welcome to Quirks and Quarks. Oh, it's my pleasure, Bob. Glad to be here. First of all, what does food without farming actually mean? Well, it means essentially recreating the similar process to what plants do to create our food. And that is taking air and water and using chemical processes to transform those into edible molecules. And, and how would this be done uh, like on, on a large scale? Well, uh, when we do this, we could make a variety of different macronutrients, uh, fats, proteins, carbohydrates. We focus on fats in the paper because it's actually the simplest type of molecule to create, and we can do it without biology. So we don't need bacteria or enzymes or things like that involved in the process. Uh, so the reactions are actually very similar to what goes on in the soap-making process today. Uh, it's just that it adds a few extra steps to make those molecules edible. Okay. Now, if it's a chemical process that you're talking about here, what are the resources that you're going to make these fats out of? Well, we need a feedstock of carbon as well as some hydrogen, and those are the building blocks for the fats that, that would be produced. And that carbon could come from any number of sources, including the air, biomass of any kind, not necessarily grown on a farm, perhaps municipal solid waste, or even fossil fuels. Really? <laughs> fossil fuels? Tell me about that. <laughs> yeah, you can take the carbon from coal or natural gas and use it as a feedstock to create these edible molecules. Really, any CO2 or methane gas is the, the starting point. 
Now, you're talking about fats here. So what kind of product are you ending up with? The opportunity, in my mind, is greatest to make fats that go into processed foods or, or are used in our cooking that no one really cares that much about the flavor of. They're just a molecule that helps us to get the texture of something right or the overall composition of a food. And the reason those are attractive, of course, is it's hard to recreate a food that's uh, unique, like an apple or, or a steak, but it's much easier if it's an ingredient that people probably don't even know where those are coming from already. Well, can you give me an example of some of the products that you'd be replacing with your <laughs> products without agriculture? Of course, yeah. I mean, uh, palm oil is a really attractive target for this kind of thing to substitute for because uh, that is grown on plantations in one once tropical forested areas. And so anything in, in the store that contains palm oil might be containing these kinds of fats in the future. And that's almost anything you can imagine in the middle of your grocery store. You know, everything from the, the cookies and snacks to the pie crusts and frozen foods. Many of those products today contain palm oil and that could be substituted. Well, what other advantages do you see to producing food without agriculture? Well, I mean, another possible savings is just the amount of resources that go into agriculture. You know, as a, a planet, most of our habitable land and most of our fresh water actually goes to growing crops. And so if we could cut back on that by replacing some of what we're growing on farms today with these industrial produced foods, then we could avoid all those resources. Now, what about the environmental impact of uh, doing it this way compared to the way we're doing it now? You mentioned even, even using fossil fuels. Will this reduce uh, emissions? Yeah, really, that's the starting point for all of this. Uh, it may or may not be something that your listeners are aware that a quarter of uh, human greenhouse gas emissions are from farming and land use. So even though energy is a big uh, share of the problem, it's not trivial and it's going to be pretty difficult to avoid those kinds of greenhouse gas emissions using traditional farming techniques. So this is a, a potential end run on that where we could create these foods in a renewable way. And in fact, in the paper, we even show that using natural gas as the feedstock could still reduce overall greenhouse gas emissions from the production of a fat relative to the palm oil plantations that we have today. Okay, I, I can see how it would reduce emissions because you're not using as much equipment and, and resources as used in farming. But if we're making food out of, say, natural gas, ultimately after I eat that food, I'm going to produce carbon dioxide. So are, are the emissions actually going down? Yeah, that's exactly right, Pop. So, you know, if you were to eat a food that had been created from a fossil fuel, once that food is metabolized and you exhale, the carbon dioxide in your breath would be fossil CO2. So that does create an emission. But even taking that into account, there's so much greenhouse gas emissions involved in creating food with agriculture that you're often still in a better place to avoid the agriculture. Mm -hmm. Now, when you talk about fats, uh, some people are concerned about bad fats like hydrogenated oils. How healthy would these synthetic fats actually be? You know, in theory, we can produce any type of fat um, that is currently eaten in a way that's molecularly identical. So really, these synthesized fats would be just as healthy or unhealthy as what we're currently eating. 
Now, a lot of people are very particular about what they eat. How do you think this kind of synthetic food will go over in the public mind? I think that's actually the biggest question mark to whether this could make a dent in some of our environmental concerns is, is whether people will accept it. You know, the jury's going to be out if uh, companies that are trying to get into this space are scaling up. We'll quickly learn whether consumers are going to accept it or not. What impact could this have on farming? Is this trying to uh, replace farms altogether? I think the key there is, you know, this wouldn't necessarily take over all farming. It would just sort of pick off those areas of agriculture where we're having really disastrous environmental impacts to produce things that aren't necessarily the best use of that land. You could imagine very high-end fruit plantations and things could still be very much uh, relevant and important. It would just be these kind of palm oil plantations that we would hope to uh, reduce. So as I drive through agricultural areas, instead of seeing vast fields of uh, like canola or something, I'll see a factory. Yeah, I mean, it's a vastly lower amount of land and besides water and other things would be entailed. So we could imagine giving a large fraction of our agricultural area back to nature if we started to do this in a big way. Dr. Davis, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Really glad to be here. Dr. Stephen Davis is a professor of Earth System Science at the University of California, Irvine. Picture a starfish in your mind. Now, think about this question. Where is its head? While it's probably not a question that keeps you up at night, scientists and artists have been struggling to figure out the answer for a while. In popular culture, one of the arms is usually assigned as the head. Think of Patrick, SpongeBob SquarePants sidekick in the popular cartoon. Or maybe the head is where the mouth is on the underside, in the middle of the starfish, where the arms converge. Or maybe these creatures have no head at all. While researchers have finally managed to make heads or tails of this situation by looking at the sea star's genetic blueprints. Christopher Lowe is a professor at Hopkins Marine Station at Stanford University and an author of the new study. Dr. Lowe, welcome to our program. Thank you. Great to be here. What inspired you to investigate where a sea star's head is? Echinoderms, which is the larger group that starfish belong to, um, have been a zoological puzzle for hundreds of years now. They are surprisingly, probably to most people, they're pretty close related to our own group of animals, the chordates. And even after 200 years of trying to understand echinoderm biology, people have had a great deal of difficulty making even basic comparisons of a starfish body plan. A body plan is what we define as the major organizational features of an animal. Well, how is the body plan of a sea star different from, uh, say, a human? Most animals that we're familiar with um, have what's called bilateral symmetry. So there's a plane of symmetry along the main axis of the animal. So there's a head and a tail axis and then a dorsal and a ventral, a front-to-back axis. And echinoderms seem to have broken all of those symmetry rules, and they have evolved a pentaradial symmetry, radial organization, which um, looks nothing like the bilateral animals that gave rise to the echinoderms um, during evolution. That's five arms? Five points of the star represents this pentaradial symmetry, yeah. So what did you do in your study to figure out where their head actually is? A lot of people who are interested in developmental biology, how an egg forms an adult. 
they've uncovered over the past 40 years a surprising level of conservation of the genes that are responsible for turning on different regions of the body plan. So for simplicity's sake, we can separate the body into the trunk and to a head territory. And so despite this extraordinary diversity of of animal body plans that we see in front of us from snails, octopus, and vertebrates, they maintain an extraordinary conservation of the genetic coordinates that turn on the major features of the body plan. What is a head and what is a trunk? Our approach was, well, what about these genes that seem to be so conservative in all the bilaterian body plans? Where might those genes be expressed um, during the development of this radial body plan and does that give us a sort of secret, sort of hidden anatomy, a molecular anatomy that is more informative and more conservative than the weird anatomies that we see in the um, final starfish body plan? Oh, I see. So we start out as just a ball of cells that all look alike. And then this program kicks in with these genes that say, okay, you go this way and become a head. You go the opposite way and become a body or toenails or something. Exactly. Okay. So what did you see when you looked at that genetic plan in the starfish? We went in with a couple of hypotheses to test. And I think the two major ones were, one is that there was a duplicated axis so that each arm of the starfish basically represents a head-to-tail axis, duplicated many times, and then joined at the head. And the other one is that the mouth-to-anus axis, so if you pick up a starfish, if you, if you turn it over and look at the center, that's where the mouth is. And if you flip it back over again to its normal orientation, the very top in the center of the animal is the anus. And so the other hypothesis is that mouth-to-anus axis is representative of the head-to-trunk axis, and that the classic arms of a starfish were really are representative, representative of, a, of a kind of a limb. And what we saw is when you look at the genes that are involved in specifying the head of all bilaterians that we know of, they are expressed in a certain order. So if you think of the ones that define the forebrain of a vertebrate, the very anterior part of the human brain, if we look for the genes that are important for specifying that region, they're expressed right around the mouth, and then along each of the midlines of the arms, leading out to the tip of the arm, but right in the middle of the arm. And then if you look at genes that are in a, in a human would be expressed in the midbrain, a little bit further back from the forebrain, they're expressed on either side of that midline of the starfish arm. And then finally, if you look at the genes that are expressed at the boundary between your spinal cord and your hindbrain, so a little bit further back in the brain of a human, they are expressed right at the edges of the arm and they form a perimeter around the entire perimeter of the animal, around each arm and around the disc of the arm. So basically what you're saying is that the, these genes that, that express for the, for the head and the brain are all over the sea star's body. So it's all head, is that right? It's all head, exactly. <laughs> Which you may have heard that starfish are acephalized animals, meaning they've lost their heads. And what our data seems to be suggesting is that rather than being acephalized, they're actually all head. Okay. So then what happened to its body and tail? When we looked for the genes that define the trunk in the animal, um, and these are a very famous group of genes called Hox genes, um, and they're molecular switches that are involved in patterning trunks of, of vertebrates and of flies. None of the, the, the genes that we see classically defining trunks we see expressed where we'd normally expect to see them expressed. And so 
This suggests that the animal has entirely lost that trunk program. Somewhere during the evolution of the echinoderms, they lost their trunk and emphasized their head. And each arm would represent kind of a head limb. Okay, so these animals lost their tails and quit when they were ahead. There you go. Excellent. <laughs> Does this unusual distribution of the uh, sort of the genes in the sea star surprise you? They really did. I think when myself and my postdoc, Laurent Formery, who really led this project, when we started this project, I think both of us really expected that the data would back up one of the existing hypotheses that were based on morphology. And there were no morphological hypotheses, nor was it anywhere in our head that this would be the final result that we would that we would have come up with. Why is it important to know how these creatures, these sea stars, develop? Most insights that we have from developmental biology comes from a very select set of species. And they tend to be species that are very well behaved in the lab. So if our goal eventually is to understand broadly how animals evolve, then we have to understand the developmental biology of many of these more unusual species from the perspective of developmental biology. And so what I think our study does is to take a real outlier in terms of symmetry systems and body plans and gives a little bit of an insight on how these extraordinarily conserved genetic networks can be morphed and shaped into really unusual topologies during the evolution of body plans over 550 to 600 million years. Dr. Lowe, thank you so much for your time. It was my pleasure. Thank you very much. Dr. Christopher Lowe is a professor at Hopkins Marine Station at Stanford University. As the saying goes, we are what we eat. Well, for endangered southern right whales, it's all about where they eat. It turns out that parts of the ocean where these marine mammals feed leave unique traces on their bodies. And a team of scientists analyzed skin samples from the whales and compared them with 400 years worth of whaling records to see how the whales' foraging habits in the southern ocean have changed. And what they found says a lot about the state of the ocean today. Dr. Solène Derville was part of the team. She's a postdoctoral researcher in the Geospatial Ecology of Marine Megafauna Lab at Oregon State University. Dr. Derville, welcome to our program. Hi, thank you for having me. First of all, how do you get skin samples from right whales? Approaching whales for a biopsy, a whale that is, you know, 10 to 15 meal long is no easy thing. Scientists that are studying right, seven right whales tend to collect samples when the whales are in their breeding and calving grounds. They approach whales with small boats and they collect a biopsy with a specifically designed veterinary rifle or a crossbow. And the arrow is equipped with a tiny metal piece, tiny metal tip that will collect a little piece of skin and blubber, bounce off the whale and float at the surface of the water to be retrieved. Wow, sounds like quite an adventure chasing a whale in a small boat. Does it, does it hurt the whales at all? No, it doesn't. The sample is really small. It's about one centimeter on a whale that is you know, 10 to 15 meters long. So once you get the skin samples from the whale, what are you actually looking for? 
So there's a lot of things we can do with whale skin samples, but the one thing we looked at in our study was isotopes. So in this study, we used carbon and nitrogen stable isotopes. So maybe I should explain a little more about what these isotopes are. Mm -hmm. Isotopes are just different forms of a given element. So in this case, carbon and nitrogen. They just have different number of nutrients in their core, which makes them more or less heavy. And because of that, isotopes of the same elements act differently in chemical reaction, and they just end up in different ratios in the environment and in the food web. So we analyze the isotopic ratio in the whale's tissue to know what it's been feeding on and where it's been feeding. Ah, so are these isotopes in, in the, what the whale is eating or are they in the water? Isotopes are everywhere. They are in our environment. They are in our bodies and in all animals and living things. They just get incorporated differently depending on the animal's diet. Well, how do these isotopes give you information about where the whales were feeding? So in this study, we've used isotope to locate a bit better where whales are foraging within that huge uh, southern ocean. And what the isotope showed us was that the six different population that we worked on had different foraging patterns, had different distribution, and that these distributions changed with time. So we looked at foraging distribution over the last three decades using this, these isotopic uh, ratios analysis. And we compared these results with whaling data. So those are the geographical position of the catches that were reported by whalers in their logbooks. And we have that data from the end of the 18th century through the 19th century and early 20th century. So quite a, a huge temporal range here over which we could assess how foraging distribution of salmon right whales has changed. Wow, that's amazing that you have that data going back so far from whalers who recorded where they caught right whales. So what have you seen then in how these whales' lifestyles have changed over time? So this work shows how each southern right whale population, so those that are breeding in South America, South Africa, Australia, or New Zealand, how they're using the southern ocean. Also, all of the waters that are located south of these continents and how that use has changed or remained stable over the last 400 years. So what we found was that since the whaling era, there was a remarkable stability in the use that southern right whales had of certain mid-latitude subtropical fronts, which are located a bit further south of all these continents. And it was quite remarkable to see how they had maintained that use from the whaling era up to nowadays. But on the other hand, we found that southern right whale had also shifted their use of the higher latitudes. So the waters that are located closer to the ice age, to the Antarctic continent. And that change occurred around over the last three decades. And, and what do you think is responsible for that? We believe that these shifts in southern right whale distribution occurred in response to changes in prey distribution, so copepods and krill in the case of southern right whales, and that these shifts are to be put in relation with climate change. 
Oh, I see. Well, we hear a lot about how the Southern Ocean is warming because of climate change. So it's, it's shifting the food, in other words. Yes, definitely. The Southern Ocean is experiencing some of the most intense and rapid consequences of global warming. Do you have an idea of how the numbers of these whales have changed since the time of the whaling records? Southern great whales have really been decimated by whaling. We're talking about more than 150,000 whales that have been removed from the ocean from the 18th century to the mid-20th century. And models show that the southern ray whale population have probably been depleted down to about 400 individuals. So we came pretty close to actually seeing that species going extinct. What about since then, since we stopped hunting them? The southern right whale population are slowly recovering. Um, so are other large whale species that have been decimated by whaling. But they are recovering at different rates. And that's also what we're trying to understand here is why certain population are doing a bit better than others. And does that have to do with the foraging conditions that they are now experiencing in a changing climate? So how could understanding these uh, right whales foraging behaviors help us better protect them? Well, if we want to understand what the future holds for sovereign right whales, we definitely need to know where they feed and ideally start protecting these regions. So that's really what our work is contributing to, um, identifying these high-priority conservation areas in the Southern Ocean. Dr. Deville, thank you again for your time. Oh, you're welcome. Dr. Solène Deville is a postdoctoral researcher in the Geospatial Ecology of Marine Megafauna Lab at Oregon State University. Are vegans actually unhealthy? Does cannabis ruin your sleep? And why are so many men taking testosterone supplements? I'm Mitch. And I'm Greg. And we're the creators of the popular YouTube channel, ASAP Science. Every week on our podcast, Side Note by ASAP Science, we explain the science behind a controversial subject with recent research, up-to-date studies, and ridiculous stories so you are entertained while, bam, simultaneously learning. We're here to make science make sense. Download Side Note by ASAP Science wherever you got your podcasts. I'm Bob McDonald, and you're listening to Quirks and Quarks on CBC Radio 1. Coming up later on the program, struggling with the paradox behind the argument that humans lack free will. 99% of the time, I'm a total flaming hypocrite because I can't live the way I'm supposed to if I really, really believe there's no free will. Music can be a comfort a source of pleasure and consolation during difficult times. Ever notice, for example, that after a breakup, all country music seems to be about you? Well, it turns out that music is more than an emotional consolation. A new study suggests it can be a literal comfort that can help to soothe physical as well as psychic pain. In other words, that bittersweet ballad may be acting as an analgesic. Darius Valavechis, a doctoral student in the Department of Neuroscience from the University of Montreal, was part of the research team. Mr. Valavechis, welcome to Quirks and Quarks. Hi, thanks for having me. What were you trying to understand about the relationship between music and pain? So for many years, there have been a lot of clinical studies done looking at the effects of music on pain and pain-related anxiety. But there hasn't been a lot of research that's been done to figure out uh, how is music reducing pain, or what are the underlying mechanisms? 
Well, take me through your experiment. How did you look into this? So we conducted a, uh, a behavioral study at McGill. We had 63 people come into our laboratory. And basically, we had a relatively simple experiment where we played them different types of music, including their favorite music that they brought in, uh, the songs that they would bring to a desert island, as well as some relaxing instrumental tracks that were provided to us by a music therapy app. And while they were listening to these different music conditions, we uh, tortured them a little bit. So we applied uh, heat stimulations uh, using a Medoc probe to their left inner arm. Uh, and after each stimulation, they were asked to rate a couple of measures. So the intensity of their pain and the unpleasantness of their pain, which corresponds to the sensory and emotional aspects of pain, because it does have this dual nature. And they also rated several uh, aspects of their emotional response to the music. And we also asked them some open-ended interview questions. So getting at this more qualitative description of what they experience. Now, how much pain were you actually uh, giving these people? Like, what, what would it compare to? So it compares pretty well to a particularly hot cup of coffee held against the skin. So pretty unpleasant, but you can kind of tolerate it for a few seconds, uh, which corresponds to temperatures between about 45 and 50 degrees Celsius. And how often were you doing this while they were listening to the music? Uh, so the experiment went on for 45 to 50 minutes, with most of that being music listening, and they went through uh, around uh, 50 thermal stimulations about once every minute while they were listening. Wow. So how effective was the music at relieving the pain? Yeah, so it depended on the type of music that we played to participants. We found that um, their favorite music that they brought in was really kind of immediately effective at reducing uh, both the unpleasantness of the pain they were experiencing and uh, to a lesser degree, the intensity. Uh, we found that the relaxing instrumental music that we played was not so effective. It had a, quite a small effect that might be partially due to some of the constraints on our experiment. So we had to really like shorten these tracks down to about seven minutes, whereas they're designed to be played over a period of 20 to 40 minutes. And there's some evidence that that really helps the effects of, of relaxing music come through, um, especially in clinical care. But we found that, yeah, the favorite music was really effective. We found that that effect was driven partially by how much people enjoyed the music, so just the amount of positive emotion they experienced. And we also found that the amount of musical chills that they experienced while listening really strongly predicted uh, not only feeling less unpleasantness from the pain, but also predicted a lower degree of sensation, which is really interesting because it suggests that uh, when you experience musical chills, there might be some kind of sensory gating effect that comes along with that. Well, take me through that. What do you think the mechanism is, is here that's reducing the, the sensation of pain? So, yeah, we have two hypotheses uh, which correspond to this difference we saw between the enjoyment of the music pretty much only affecting the emotional component of pain and the chills affecting more of the sensory component of pain. So we think, yeah, with chills, which you really experience as this very in-the-body thing of like tingling down the spine, there might be some kind of downward inhibition associated with that, where pain signals are blocked from coming up to the brain. And with the enjoyment of the music, we think it might be this competition basically between this positive stimulus, which is music, and this negative stimulus, which is pain. Uh, and in certain models of decision making, to help you make one uh, decision of like what to attend to or like what's important, there's this winner-take-all competition between stimuli of different values. So the favorite music, which is uh, has this really, really positive connotation, uh, 
is outcompeting the pain and decreasing the the amount of pain that people are feeling essentially. Now, when you mentioned the chill effect, is that the bittersweet music that I mentioned earlier? So we found that, uh, yeah, music that participants reported having these moving or bittersweet uh, relationships with, or, or that they felt these feelings of mixed emotions or very emotional, or maybe the music made them cry and things like that, that they also reported more chills when listening to this kind of music. Uh, we also found that the people who tended to bring moving or bittersweet music tended to score higher on musical engagement, especially the narrative, emotional, and social aspects of music. And that also predicted having, uh, experiencing more musical chills. Hmm. So how much of a pain reduction were they reporting? So for people's favorite music, we saw a reduction of about uh, one point on a 10-point scale, which in the context of experimental pain is pretty substantial. So should music replace pain medication? So definitely the main goal with this study and with uh, music for pain relief in general is to potentially reduce the dosage of medication that people have to take for pain relief. Uh, anything that can take the edge off and just kind of lower the amount of medication that people have to take is good since medications can have side effects uh, and sometimes form dependencies. Mr. Balavachis, thank you for your time. All right, thank you very much. Great to be here. Darius Balavachis is a doctoral student in the Department of Neuroscience from the University of Montreal. Let's take a moment and think about how you got to this point in your life. For me, if I hadn't shown up at the Ontario Science Centre as a 22-year-old and asked for a job talking about science, I don't know where I'd be right now. It was one of many forks in the road that's brought me to where I am today. But according to one of the world's best-known behavioral scientists, I actually had no choice in the matter. You may know Robert Sapolsky from one of his acclaimed books, like A Primate's Memoir, or Behave. Well, his new book is called Determined, A Science of Life Without Free Will. And he just had to come on the show to talk to us about it. Dr. Sapolsky has spent his career as a field primatologist studying baboons in Africa and as a professor of biology, neurology, and neurosurgery at Stanford University studying stress. Hello, Dr. Sapolsky. Welcome back to our program. Thanks. Thanks for having me back. Now, you argue in your book that there's no such thing as free will, something you've been very vocal about for years. What do you mean by free will? Well, it's probably most useful for me to start off with what it isn't, because this one plays out all the time and in people's intuitions and in courtrooms and all of that. Okay, you got some defendant sitting there and you're trying to decide what to do and you figured out the person actually did the act so that's behind you and then what is done is three questions are asked did the person intend to do what they did did they know what the consequences were likely to be and did they realize they had options they could have done otherwise and if the answer to yes is all of those that's it they're responsible they intended to do that and for my money, this is completely misguided. And what it's like is trying to review a movie, only seeing the last three minutes of it. 
Because what that doesn't do is ask the absolute critical question, oh yeah, so where'd that intent come from in the first place? And where that intent came from is every single thing in that person's past over which they had no control that made them who they were at that moment that they intended to do that. So what's the biological basis to your argument? Well, it's one which sort of comes undeniably if you're me and you're out in the left field as far as I am on this issue. But like you look at some behavior and you ask a biologist sort of question, which is, so why did you do that at that point? And that's actually a whole hierarchy of questions. You're asking which neurons in your brain just did something a second ago and which ones turned off. But you're also asking what was in your environment in the last minute that triggered those neurons to do that. And you're also asking what did your hormone levels that you've had since this morning have to do with how sensitive your brain was or wasn't to those stimuli? And you're asking, did you have trauma in the last four months or did you find love or did you find God? Because all of those things would have changed the construction of your brain. And you're also asking, well, what was your adolescence like and your childhood when you were building your brain and your fetal life where you sure had no choice as to whose womb you wound up in? And because that, the blood coming from your mother was carrying all sorts of hormones and nutrients and stuff that was guiding the construction of your brain. And then, of course, you got to ask what your genetic makeup is. And then you even have to ask something as nutty as what kind of culture were your ancestors inventing 400 years ago and what sort of ecosystem were they in that prompted that? Because that had everything to do with how your mother was mothering you from your first minute of life after birth. And you put all those pieces together and probably most importantly, this is not just saying, ooh, all these different disciplines contribute to it. After a while, they all turn into one discipline. If you're talking about genes and behavior, by definition, you're also talking about the evolution of them. And you're also talking about your childhood that epigenetically programmed your genes to do this or that for the rest of your life. And you're also talking about the proteins those genes made for you 15 minutes ago. It's all one seamless arc. And there isn't a crack anywhere in there to shoehorn in free will. <laughs> okay. Well, let's go through some of these contributing factors that you just listed there that can impact our decisions or what we do. Like, let's take the uh, the environment or the culture we grew up in. How's that going to affect? Okay. Culture. Here's a great example of it. Go look at the people you came from, whoever they were back when, and look at them from 400 years ago. And I cited that number because studies have actually looked at this and shown this. And look at that population and ask, what was their infectious disease load back 400 years ago? How much were they struggling with like horrible epidemics of things and that killing people? Which another way of saying that was how uptight were they about strangers coming in who could be carrying who knows what infectious thing. And it turns out the larger the infectious disease load somebody's ancestors had 400 years ago, 
that's a part of a significant predictor of whether or not they like the idea of more immigrants coming into the country right now. Because you were raised in a culture sculpted by that ecosystem and culture back when about how you feel about strangers and strange things. Now, you also mentioned hormones. Uh, how much of a role do they play in how we act? Huge amount. Let's take testosterone. What were your testosterone levels like this morning? Because it turns out if they were higher than average for you, and you're looking at a face right now, a picture of a face that has a totally neutral expression, doesn't look friendly, doesn't look angry, doesn't look anything. And like 99% of people would say, oh, that's a very neutral expression on the face. If you had elevated testosterone levels this morning, you are now significantly more likely to decide instead that the face looks threatening and looks angry and looks unfriendly. And we even know the nuts and bolts in neurobiology of how testosterone did that. And thus, you're seeing the world differently than other people do because of what your hormones were doing at breakfast today. And thus, you're more likely to make an antisocial decision about your behavior rather than a pro-social one. Mm-hmm. What about our senses? Uh, I might... Uh smell something bad or something good and and make a decision to change my behavior based on that. Yeah. And without you knowing it, this is like one of my favorite studies in the universe. Take somebody and sit them down and have them fill out a questionnaire about their politics, their social politics, their economic views, whatever. And Get them three weeks later and have them fill out a similar questionnaire. And if they happen to be sitting in a room that smells of rotten old garbage, and you can actually like call up and get a little vial of rotten garbage odorant, and you can like open up the cap in the room there, and the person is sitting there, and the room just smells bad. If they're sitting in that room, they are now more likely to be more socially conservative about how they think about social issues. It does nothing to their economic views, nothing to their geopolitical views. What's going on? Because the part of your brain that processes disgusting smells is the same part of your brain that processes what you consider to be disgusting morals. And you kind of confuse the two. Ah, something just seems disgusting. I know what seems disgusting. Those people, those people, when they do that sort of thing, it's just wrong, wrong, wrong. And alternatively, if the room smelled of fresh chocolate chip cookies, you'd be more generous. <laughs> but you're, you're saying more. You're saying more likely. That's not 100% likely. So saying our decisions, our, our influence is not the same as not having free will. Okay, so here's where I become a total pain in the rear, because you're absolutely right. These are all on the average and the tendency towards, and this will tilt you towards on, and influences all of that. And we know this much at this point, because it's 2023, and 10 years ago, we knew about half of this, and 25 years ago, we knew a quarter of this, and Like in the 15 minutes we've been talking, seven new hormones have been discovered. So one answer to that is we're just learning more and more of this stuff and we're going to know more of this stuff and uh, like get ahead of the curve on it. That's one possible answer. Another one is we already know enough 
we know without perfect predictability that if a kid grows up in a single parent household with a mother who's working four jobs to meet the rent and they're like dealing with substance abuse issues and gangs in the neighborhood and poverty, that we know this kid is approximately 80 fold more likely to wind up having a history of antisocial violence by age 25 than a kid growing up in the suburbs with two parents who were professionals and who at night sing lullabies to them and read them books. We know enough already to decide that a system that decides that each of those people was actually responsible for their terrible outcome or their wonderful outcome, that something's wrong with this picture. Well, it's it's also not cut and dried like that because people from rough upbringings can become, you know, socially responsible, great people, and people in great upbringings can become, you know, criminals. And we love those. We love those because those are the best. We sit there and we say, oh, someone who's shown tenacity and grit and risen above their circumstances or even more fun. You look at someone who had everything going for them. And here's here's the killer word we toss out at this point. They squandered all of that and have wound up in this pitiable state. What that's getting at is this completely false dichotomy we have in our heads intuitively about free will, which is like we're all willing to admit, okay, okay, there's stuff we had no control over, that I happen to be someone with a good like digit memory span or tall enough to play professional basketball or like good enough of a nose that I can be a perfumer. Like, yeah, we're handed stuff that we had no control over, but what really matters matters then is what we do with it. Do we show tenacity? Do we show gumption or do we squander away our opportunities? And the completely false dichotomy there is we think stuff like how good our memory is or how fast we could run or whether we have perfect pitch or that stuff is made out of biology. That stuff is made out of brain yuck and neurons and molecules and stuff. But oh, what we do with it, that's made out of fairy dust. And that's this false dichotomy. And what do you do with it? And whether you show self-discipline or you succumb every single time there's a temptation, whether you were able to like push your way through the pain in a marathon or stop or it's made of the same biological stuff as is everything else going on in your brain, your capacity for self-discipline, your capacity for impulse control. Your, that's made of the same exact stuff. And what sort of luck you did or didn't have growing up was going to determine how good the part of your brain that does that is at doing it. In your book, you often compare us to sea slugs to describe how biology can dictate behavior. Take me through that. Well, I picked a sea slug called an aplesia because it can learn to do something. It has this gill thing on its surface. And if something like threatening happens to its gills, it's got this reflex. It can retract its gills. But you can teach it to do something. If you give it a mild electric shock on its rear end now and then, I guess they, they have tails. You give a little shock there. It could learn that whenever it gets a shock, 
to retract its gills. It doesn't have to have the gill itself be pummeled by something. It learns. It changed its behavior. Now it learned that whenever somebody does this like jerky thing to their tail, pull in my gill because who knows what's going to happen to my gill after that. And then what blew everybody on their rears is you look at what happens when we learn something, when we're conditioned to have a hostile response, when we see the face of someone who looks like that, because we've been taught they're scary, they're not like us, whatever it is. And you look at the people who are dissecting that, and it's the same neurotransmitters, and it's the same chemicals, and it's the same processes, and we're just as much of a machine as is that sea slug, just a gazillion times more complicated. But like if anything, seeing how change comes about in an organism like that sea slug, or like us, when we learn to be prejudiced or when we learn to not be a white supremacist anymore or when we learn how to do a new type of like tap dancing or whatever, it's the same machinery going on inside. Okay, Dr. Sapolsky, if you're right and we do lack free will, then what implications does this have for how we conduct ourselves in the world? Do we need to take responsibility for anything? Um. No, but having said that, I should point out, well, for one thing, I'm on the lunatic fringe as to just how extremely I push this, but I'm perfectly happy if someone concludes rather than there's no free will at all, that there's a lot less of it and enough so that you got to rethink things. That said, 99% of the time, I'm a total flaming hypocrite because I can't live the way I'm supposed to if I really, really believe there's no free will, which is... I don't count for anything more than anyone else. No one is less deserving of anything than I am. I cannot blame anyone. I should take no pride in my accomplishments. And hating someone is like as ridiculous as hating an earthquake. But if you really, really think that way, like we'd have to transform the criminal justice system because that's predicated on responsibility that doesn't really exist. And we'd have to transform meritocracies because that's predicated on free will that doesn't exist. And we'd have to think differently about everything. And yeah, it's going to be unbelievably difficult, but we can do it bit by bit. And we've been doing it bit by bit for centuries and we managed to pull it off. And each time we do, the world becomes more humane. You know, for example, for centuries and centuries, if you were a parent or a school teacher and some kid was just not learning how to read, we had all sorts of free will agency laden terms that we might think of at that point, like they're not motivated or they're lazy or who knows what. And then, I don't know, 20 years ago, a certain flavor of neurobiologists learned, no, if you have some neurons that are wired up in a screwy way in one part of your cortex, you invert certain looped letters in the alphabet when you try to read them, and you have reading problems, and you have dyslexia. Oh, the kid really wasn't lazy and unmotivated. We have just learned that was a domain that we attributed to free will and responsibility, and it really didn't. And now kids like that get taught to read differently. And not only didn't the roof cave in when we learned that free will had nothing to do with these kids having trouble learning to read, the world came a more humane place because they weren't being blamed for things they had no control over. 
Well, Dr. Sapolsky, the clock, which I have no control over, is determining that we have to end our conversation now. <laughs> Thank you so much for the book, and thanks for talking to us. Well, thanks for letting me rant. Dr. Robert Sapolsky is a professor of biology, neurology, and neurosurgery at Stanford University and the author of the new book, Determined, A Science of Life Without Free Will. And now it's time for our Quirks and Quarks listener question. Hello, I'm Paul Gateman from Port Elgin, Ontario. Fire consumes oxygen and burning millions of acres of organics decreases natural oxygen production from plants and trees. Is the atmospheric oxygen concentration decreasing due to the effects of climate change? And here's the answer. Hello, my name is Sasha Wilson. I'm a professor in the Department of Earth and Atmospheric Sciences at the University of Alberta in Edmonton. To answer this question, we need to consider the composition of the Earth's atmosphere. It contains about 78% nitrogen, 21% oxygen, about 1% argon, and around 0.04% trace gases such as carbon dioxide. There's about 420 parts per million CO2 in air today. When we look at uh, the trends from the last year, we don't see a lot of change. So the forest fires would have contributed less than one part per million of new CO2 and consumed a similar amount of oxygen. So 420 parts per million CO2 compared to 21%, which is 210,000 parts per million is a big difference. So the amount of oxygen that might have been consumed in the fires would be somewhere in the fourth decimal place of 21.0000%. So that means we don't have to worry too much about consuming oxygen in the atmosphere because we have plenty of it. I hope this helps. Dr. Sasha Wilson is a professor in the Department of Earth and Atmospheric Sciences at the University of Alberta in Edmonton. And you may have noticed it's that time of year. Halloween has passed, the trees are losing their leaves, and there's more than a hint of winter in the air. And you know what that means. It's time to think of questions for the Quirks and Quarks Holiday Listener Question Show. Our question show is fast approaching, and we need your science questions to make it sing. So send them in, and we'll get on the job of answering them. We'll tell you how in just a moment. And that's it for Quirks and Quarks this week. If you'd like to get in touch with us, our email is quirks at cbc.ca, or just go to the contact link on our webpage at cbc.ca slash quirks, where you can read my latest blog or listen to our audio archives. You can also follow our podcast or get us on the CBC Listen app. It's free from the App Store or Google Play. Quirks and Quarks was produced by Olsi Sorokina, Sonia Biting, and Mark Crawley. Our senior producer is Jim Levins. I'm Bob McDonald. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.